Let's open in prayer and then dive in, because we have a good bit of material to cover. Dear Father, we pray that you would show us your glory in this text today. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if someone were to ask you, what is the Bible all about? How would you answer that question? Maybe you'd give it the old Sunday school response, as I've heard Pam call it, and say, Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. Well, you would be right, of course. But why is it, then, that we have to read a whole 39 books into the Bible before we even hear his name? You know, people who read the Bible only casually often assume, mistakenly, that it's just a collection of fantastic tales and a bunch of rules and some genealogies. But, oh, how wrong they are, right? The Bible is so much more than that. And the passages you studied for today and the ones you'll kind of keep studying for the next few weeks, even if they are a little bit tedious to read at times, they're actually one of those places in Scripture where we see the unity of the Bible's story. So in these repetitions and details, in the weaving and the twisting and the goatskins and the turban, we actually learn something about how God has been working in the past, how he is working in the present, and how he will work in the future to bring about the completion of the story that began way back in Genesis to its glorious conclusion in the book of Revelation. So the tabernacle at once looks back to Eden and forward to new creation. You know, my parents were really slow to buy a plasma TV. So when my kids were little, I would take them to my parents' house and they would watch something on their little box TV that kind of sat up on a counter. <laughs> and I could still hear my then three-year-old Asher saying, Grandma, why is your TV so fuzzy? <laughs> well, reading through this section in Exodus is a little bit like watching a movie on an old TV. You can see the images, but they're a little grainy kind of fuzzy, as Asher described them. Well, that's what's happening here. We can store, see the story of redemption unfold, but it is fuzzy, and we need the clarity of the New Testament to, to bring those images into sharp focus. So as we study these texts, we will depend on the New Testament to help us see the significance of what God was doing in these plans for the tabernacle. Okay, but before we get lost in symbols and details, Let's remember the heart behind these texts. So in the tabernacle, what we see is God's desire to be with his people. We see that his original creation design for his image bearers to live with him in a perfect world where they rule under his authority, that hasn't changed. And that's important. God's mission has not changed. It's the people who have changed. We are now all faulty image bearers who can no longer be in God's presence and who can no longer be trusted to rule the world with his character. But God will recover what was lost, and the tabernacle is a preview of how he's going to do it. So for today, we're going to break down the material into three parts. We're going to kind of build our own structure. We'll start with the frame. And the frame here is Eden and the garden that God planted there. That kind of frames the whole section. Next, we'll talk about the foundations, 
Okay, these are the generous contributions of God's people. Without these gifts, they could not build the tabernacle. And then third, we'll talk about the furniture. The tabernacle was built to house specific items of furniture. Okay, but let's look first at the frame. As I said, all these chapters look back at Eden and forward to new creation. Today, we're going to mostly talk about how they look backward, and then in two weeks, we'll look at how they point forward. But just remember that Eden and new creation are kind of woven and twisted into our text, just like the gold thread was woven and twisted into the curtains on the tabernacle. Well, the very first link to Eden comes at the end of Exodus 24 in verses 16 and 17. So at this spot in the narrative, the elders have just dined on the mountain with God, mountain in God's presence. They even, remember, they even saw the God of Israel, although he was obscured, no doubt, to protect them. And we only get a description of what was under God's feet. Well, after this meal, God calls Moses further up the mountain where Moses waits for six days. On the seventh day, God calls Moses from inside the cloud and tells him to come up even further where God will give him the blueprints for constructing the tabernacle. Well, these numbers are the first link back to the garden. So God created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested, and he blessed that day, making it holy. Well, once God finished that work of creation in six days, where do we find him next? He's indwelling the garden. He's there. He's walking in the garden in Genesis 3.8. And the language there assumes that this is God's custom. He walks in the garden in the middle, in the cool of the day. So when Adam and Eve hear God, hear a noise in the garden, they immediately know it's God walking in the garden. But on this particular day, rather than joining God and enjoying being in his presence, what do they do? They hide. They hide from him because they've broken the one command of the garden. Well, similarly, in Exodus 24, after the six days, God is on the mountain. He's in the world he created, and he calls out for Moses, inviting him into his presence. And Moses does not hide. Instead, he disappears into the cloud to learn how Israel, too, can be in God's presence. Now remember, it can't be like the garden again because God's people have changed. But God does intend to walk among his people once again. That word so often translated dwell can in other places be translated walk, just as it is in Leviticus 26.12 and then again in Deuteronomy 23.14. So God will walk among his people like he did in the garden. All right, so you see the symmetry there between creation and tabernacle and Moses' six-day wait on the mountain and then God's calling to Moses on the seventh day. Well, another subtle link to Eden is in the framing of the instructions that God gave Moses. So God's instructions are delivered in a series of seven speeches, each beginning with, the Lord said to Moses. And this verbiage just recalls the seven days of creation, which all began, and God said. So we have the Lord said, God said. I'll show you. Look at 25 verse 1. This is the first speech. The Lord said to Moses. And then what follows is five and a half chapters of tabernacle instructions. Flip over to chapter 30 and look at verse 11. We see it again. The Lord said to Moses. Here we have a second speech about this time about the census tax. 30, 17. 
the Lord said to Moses. Here we have a third speech concerning the bronze basin. 30.22, again, the Lord said to Moses, and we have a fourth speech about oil and incense. 30.34, the Lord said to Moses, fifth speech about the specific recipe for the tabernacle incense. Again in 31.1, for the sixth speech, the Lord said to Moses, and he tells them about filling Aholiab and Bezalel for building the tabernacle. 31.12 gives us, gives us the seventh and final speech about the tabernacle. And it is an instruction about keeping the Sabbath. So remember, what did God say on the seventh day of creation in Genesis 2.1? Okay, he blessed that seventh day, he rested, and he made it holy. That was the first Sabbath. And then when God actually instituted the ritual of the Sabbath in the wilderness, he connected it back to creation, of course, saying, I rested, I have set the pattern, now you will rest. But a third subtle link to creation narrative is found in even two further linguistic parallels between creation week and the building of the tabernacle. So in Exodus 40, 33, when Moses completes the tabernacle, the verse concludes with, so Mona, Moses finished the work. And this is just like Genesis 2, 2, after God cre finishes creation, it says, God finished his work. In Genesis 1.28, after God created Adam and Eve, we're told God blessed them. And in Exodus 39.43, when Moses sees all the work the Israelites have done to prepare for building the tabernacle, scriptures say, then Moses blessed them. So are you starting to see the Eden, Edenic frame here? All right, fourth link. What did Adam and Eve immediately know when they ate the fruit? What did they realize? Oh dear, we're naked. And they were ashamed. So nakedness after the fall is now shameful. So shameful that God will actually have specific instructions for priestly underwear, right? So that they aren't guilty of nakedness in God's presence. That's in Exodus 28, verses 42 and 43. Okay, so after the fall, people had to be clothed to cover the shame of their nakedness, and especially in God's presence. All right, now the fifth link is in the gold, but you can go ahead and leave that blank for now. We'll go back and fill out those last four links to um, Eden as we talk about the furniture. So move on for now to the foundations. Now the foundation of the tabernacle is the generosity of God mirrored in his people. So in this really beautiful moment, God's chosen people will carry the image of God with honor. Okay, so we left Moses on the seventh day in the cloud receiving instructions for the tabernacle. Well, the first thing God says to Moses in 25.1 is, take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. So in this section, this foundation section, we're going to answer the reporter questions of who, what, how, and why. And we're going to answer them twice, actually. The first time, we're going to answer them from God's perspective in chapter 25, and the second time, we'll answer them from people's perspective in chapter 35. So who contributes? God says every man, but don't focus on the gender yet. The larger point here is that God only wanted contributions from those with a willing and eager spirit. Okay, what contributions? 
Anything? No. God gave a very specific list of contributions, and this is in keeping with his character. He is holy and pure and inaccessible unless he makes a way for us. So we come to God on his terms. Some offerings are acceptable, and some are not, as Cain learned. So God's people bring him the gifts that he requests. But God isn't just asking for specific gifts. He's asking for costly gifts. Everything in this list was precious. I mean, the metals, obviously, but even the dyed yarns would have been very costly to make. But the primary gift God requests is gold. And here I'll just talk a little bit about how that relates back to Eden. So one of the rivers flowing out of Eden that watered the garden divided into four rivers, and one of those rivers encircled a land called Havilah. And the scriptures tell us that that land, in that land, in 2.11, there is gold, good gold, along with other types of precious stones, some of which we'll see named in Exodus, such as bdellium and onyx. Okay, well, how is it possible that God's people can give him these costly gifts? I mean, remember who they are. God is asking people who escaped slavery by night and have been camping out in the desert. They can't feed themselves. They can't house themselves. How are they going to bring gold? Well, in this story, we see another beautiful truth about God. When he calls, he equips. You remember that on their way out of Egypt, God told the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for gifts. And the Egyptians, they were in dread of Israel, right? And they were terrified of Israel's God. And they, they gave. They gave generously. And so Israel plundered the Egyptians. That ancient phrase, it's interesting how it's trickled down even to our modern English idioms, all the way back from Exodus 12. But Israel is most likely giving some of the gifts that were lavishly given to them by the Egyptians when they fled the country. And I kind of like to think of this text as one last humiliation of the gods of Egypt. Perhaps those gifts would have been given in service to the Egyptian gods. But here they are in the hands of God's people, and now they're given, given to the God of Israel to build his house. Okay, so why? Why does God want them to give these gifts? Well, that's an obvious one. So in 25.8, God says, so they can build a sanctuary for a place for God to dwell in their midst. So for God to be with his people, he needs a place that is holy and it can be kept untainted from sin. Now, of course, the sad irony is that while God is giving all these instructions for taking contributions from the people, what's happening down below? Well, they're giving their gold to Aaron, right? And they're making that grievous calf. But after that tragedy, God graciously responds to Moses' petitions to go with them to the promised land. He graciously renews the covenant with Israel. So rather than leaving Sinai, they stay and a chastened, repentant, and grateful people give, and give generously to build this house for their God. Okay, we're back to the who question. Let's look at it from Exodus 35 now. This is where with the profile of the givers, we get a, we get a fuller picture, and we see it's not just the men, because in 35:22 and following, it's also the women. It's all people who are described of generous heart in verse 5, in verse 21, there are people whose hearts have been stirred or whose spirit has moved them. 
Verse 22 describes them as those with a willing heart. And then verses 24 and 25 state that everyone who could made a contribution. So it sounds like all of Israel gave and gave freely. What did they give? Well, the text calls it a free will offering to God. And they gave generous gifts of precious metals and stones and fabrics and threads and yarns and hides and even their weaving skills. They gave everything God requested and more. So generous were the people that Moses had to start turning people away. So how and why did they give so generously? Well, as we stated before, they gave from their own personal wealth. But why? Well, they had faced the real terror of having to go to the promised land without God. They wanted this tabernacle in their midst, and so they gave. And this kind of generosity only proceeds from a grateful heart. This kind of free will offering comes from a person who so deeply feels God's generosity toward them that their heart mirrors God's and it overflows with generosity in response. Think of the prostitute in the Gospels. Forgiven of all her sins, she throws herself at Jesus' feet. She breaks that costly bottle of perfume on his feet and then washes her, his feet with the perfume and her tears and his hair. You know, some of the disciples sneered at that gift, not knowing just how well spent it was. Or consider a friend of mine, somebody I talked to recently. She is a new believer, and she and her husband have been getting marriage counseling at their church, and they have been so grateful for the help they've been given. They immediately started doubling their charitable contributions to their church. So, as we've noted before, Israel is a mirror for us. And so often, when we look in that mirror, we see our own idolatrous hearts reflected back at us. But I think this text asks you, hold up the mirror. Do you see Israel's generous hearts reflected back at you? Even if you don't have money or costly items to offer, you can freely offer your spiritual wealth for God's service. This, too, is an act of generosity. Serving in a ministry at church teaching those who don't know as much as you've been taught, giving of your time for others, showing hospitality, speaking encouraging words, warmly greeting one another, giving wise counsel, praying with and for others, acts of kindness, taking a meal to somebody, offering child care, picking up groceries, even things like extending mercy and forgiveness, overlooking hurtful words, avoiding gossip, being a trustworthy confidant, opening your mouth and, and offering the sacrifice of praise during worship time at church, or even sharing a testimony of God's goodness to you in your day-to-day -day conversations with people. These two are free will offerings to God, and he is so pleased when you give them. He longs to see his character flow out of the hearts of his people. But the bottom line for this foundation section it's God's generosity that is really on display in this narrative. We can never outgive God, and neither could Israel. Remember, he had graciously forgiven them a grievous violation of the covenant. He chose to renew the covenant with them. So committed to recovering the loss of Eden, the Lord will just keep on giving. He'll give of his might and wealth 
and power and mercy and forgiveness. He'll even give blood, divine blood, to get it back. He'll endure rebellion and faithlessness from his own people for centuries, lamenting, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people. That is Isaiah 65 too. What a generous God we have. He faithfully provides everything his people need. He then calls his people to participate in what he is doing and then supplies exactly what they need to do what he's asked. Okay, so we've looked at the frame for the tabernacle, we've, and we've noted that the tabernacle is a second creation account. This is an Eden remix, as G.K. Beale calls it. It can't be what it was, again, because people aren't what they once were, but God has made provisions for these changed people. Then we looked at the foundation of the tabernacle, and that is God's generosity mirrored in the generosity of his people. But let's turn our attention now to the furniture. Did any of you draw the pictures in the homework? <laughs> no, one, no one's going to admit it. I asked Casey Lichty, because she's a really good artist, to draw them, but I did not give her enough lead time. She's like, I'm sorry, I would have liked to, but she couldn't do it this week. But I hope you were able to look up the images in some of your study Bibles or online. Okay, but let's look at the ark first. So the furniture of the tabernacle will again point to the frame in many ways. Some of them will look back at Eden and they'll remind us of the foundation. But it's in the furniture that we begin to see the provisions God has made for his people. Deformed as they are by sin, he's made these provisions so that they can once more dwell with God. Okay, so the ark, it is the centerpiece of the tabernacle design. And it's the first item of furniture that God instructs Moses to build. So, build it they do. Bezalel makes the ark according to the specifications that Moses gives him. It's a wooden rectangular chest overlaid inside and out with gold. On the outside are four gold rings into which they slipped wooden poles, also covered in gold, so that the Levites wouldn't accidentally touch the ark when they transported it. So, does it remind you of Mount Sinai? So just like Mount Sinai here, the people aren't allowed to touch the ark, and they really can't even get too close to it, or they'd die. So Eve's words kind of ring in my ears here. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What wasn't true for Eve is certainly now soberingly true for Israel. They can't touch the ark or get too close. In fact, later on, when Israel transports the ark, God gives them specific commands to stay about a half mile away from it. But besides preventing the priests from touching the ark, the poles also suggested the portable nature of God's dwelling. So Israel's God goes with them all through their wilderness wanderings. You know, most of the other gods had stationary temples, and that is what Israel is heading for in the Promised Land. But for now, we, we note that God is not bound to space. He can and will go with the Israelites. I think the portable nature of the ark also prepares us for the indwelling of the Spirit in the New Testament. Our God is with us wherever we go. Well, inside this ark, Moses placed the two tablets of the covenant, the ones inscribed by God. Though in time, you'll probably remember from your reading, they're going to add a jar, a golden jar of manna, and they'll add uh, Aaron's rod that budded during Korah's rebellion. Well, this chest had a cover. 
And on the cover were two cherubim who are looking down at the cover with their wings outstretched and touching, kind of like they're reverently bowing and guarding something. So the cherubim are significant for a few reasons. First, their presence indicates that God's throne is nearby. So as you read through scripture, you'll see these supernatural beings encircling God's throne in both Ezekiel's vision of God and John's vision in Revelation. And the Psalms sometimes actually picture God riding the cherubim to Israel's rescue. And you can find a description of these four-faced, many-eyed, winged angels in Ezekiel 10 and Revelation 4. But second, the only other time we've seen this creature so far in scripture is where? Yeah, you, that's right, the Garden of Eden. So this is our sixth connection between Eden and the tabernacle. Genesis 3:24 says, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So third, the cherubim guarded or protected the way back to God. God was in the garden, because of their sin, Adam and Eve were exiled from God's presence, and the cherubim prevented their return. Similarly, the cherubim on the ark guard the, our way back to God. But they also guard his law, which is contained in the ark. God is going to give further revelation from above this ark, so these creatures are associated with guarding and keeping God's words. You know, images of the cherubim were also woven into the veil, right, which prevented the priests from even seeing inside to the Holy of Holies when they went about their routine business in the holy place. So the message is clear here. As Carl Lafferton said in his kid's book, The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, those cherubim are like a big keep out sign for mankind. Man can no longer be permitted in God's presence, and so long as the cherubim stand guard, Mankind cannot possibly return to the goodness of the garden. So to summarize here, the cherubim suggest God's presence, that God's throne is nearby, they guard the way back to God, and they protect his words, the law. And the takeaway here, I th think that we should see, is that these cherubim are actually doing our jobs. Mankind should be the ones in God's presence, guarding God's kingdom and upholding his law. But sin has kept us from this calling, so it was passed to the angels. And it makes me think of Psalm 8, right? Man is made for a little while lower than the angels. For now, the cherubim get that glorious position designed for Adam and Eve until God redeems it all in new creation. Now, why is the ark a chest and not a throne? Well, the chest is intended to be a footstool to God's heavenly throne. In Isaiah 66.1, God claims, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And this footstool idea is consistent with the bowing cherubim, so they are at his feet worshiping. And so often when we get pictures of God in scripture, we get his feet, just like we saw in Exodus 24. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, Isaiah has a vision of God in his temple, but all he can see is God, the train, like the hem of God's robe, and that fills the temple. So again, we're down near his feet. So that, those pictures suggest, too, that the earth and this ark is God's footstool. 
But the idea of the ark as a footstool is also consistent with how Israel addressed God in corporate prayers as the one enthroned above the cherubim. God is not sitting on the ark. It is not his throne. He hasn't abdicated his throne in heaven to live with his people on earth. Instead, in the tabernacle, God is joining the two, bringing heaven to earth, which we'll see again in Revelation. But let's return to the cover of the ark, which we've already described. So the Hebrew word for this lid seems to be cover, but the Hebrew word has linguistic connections to the word propitiation and to the word atonement. So propitiation is the appeasing of anger or, or the exhausting of it by a sacrifice. And God's wrath has to be spent before he can be appeased. We know from his expressed character that he will punish the guilty. Only the spilt blood of the guilty can turn away his anger towards sin. An atonement means to reconcile or to make one. You can see it in the word at one, at one meant atonement. And this atonement cover is key to the day of atonement. Once a year and once a year only, the high priest would be allowed directly into God's presence above the ark to atone for Israel's sins. This is why the atonement cover is also called the mercy seat. This is where blood purchased the forgiveness of God. But on this day, Aaron also had to purify the Holy of Holies. So even with the protection of the cherubim, the protection of the veil, the tabernacle structure itself, the courtyard, the priests, and the sacrifices, Israel's sins were so great that they tainted even this most protected holy of holiest place. So on the Day of Atonement, even the Ark had to be purged with blood. It's in this ritual that we find yet another connection to Eden. So Michael Morales draws this parallel in his book, Who Can Ascend the Mountain of God? Aaron would enter through the veil, almost as if he's walking back into the garden. The entrance to the garden faced east, as did the entrance to the tabernacle. So Aaron would turn and walk westward into the tabernacle. He'd slip past the cherubim on the veil right into God's presence. And his ability to do so gives us hope, too, that maybe we can also have access to God. If only we had a better priest than Aaron. If only we had a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. We, too, might get back to the garden. But now let's look at the table. So since the tabernacle was to be a dwelling, it contained many things that our homes contain, like a table and a lamp. If you entered the tabernacle, which by the way, you would never have been allowed to do, the golden table would have been immediately on your right. You can see that from the schematic Pam passed out. Like the ark, the table was an ornate wooden rectangle overlaid with gold. It had its own set of poles for transporting, as well as accompanying utensils. So there were bowls and pitchers and plates and other dishes. The pitchers would hold the drink offering, most likely that would be poured into the bowls. The plates were for the bread, and then the other dishes were probably for the incense that was required to be on the table as well. There were always two sacks of six loaves of bread, one representing each tribe of Israel. 
and these loaves were replaced once a week on the Sabbath when Aaron and his sons would eat the loaves from the previous week. Stale bread. Does that remind you of communion bread? <laughs> the bread was most likely flat bread, so made without yeast as they had done at the first Passover, and that actually might be why they were still fresh a week later. Well, together, the table and the bread ritual symbolize both God's communion with his people and his continued provision for them. So Aaron and his sons ate this bread in God's presence right there at the table in the tabernacle. We've already seen the elders eat a meal in God's presence on the mountain. We know from the New Testament that Jesus repeatedly dined with sinners and even sat down to eat a Passover meal with his disciples the night he was betrayed. And on that same night, he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's table. And all these illustrations show us that God's heart is to fellowship and have communion with his people. But they also show us that God is the faithful provider and sustainer. So we've seen God provide bread for Israel in the wilderness within the manna, which was probably gluten-free so everybody could eat it. He provided an endless variety of fruit trees for Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we see in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, he miraculously multiplied the loaves of bread so that large congregations of people could eat right there in his presence and walk away satisfied. God always provides for his people. And this perpetuated ritual of the showbread in the tabernacle was another reminder of that truth. The loaves were always there, just as God always provides for his people. But there is another layer of symbolism here. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, Moses speaks to Israel, saying, Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, and he humbled you and let you hunger, and then fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So bread might sustain our bodies, but it's God's words that sustain our souls. Those loaves stood as a continual reminder, not only of God's material provision, but more importantly, they stood as a reminder of his spiritual provision. God's words are the bread of life. So manna to strengthen Israel's bodies, but God's words to strengthen their souls. I think there is perhaps a nod to Eden, even in the showbread. So when man was exiled from the abundance of the garden, he entered a world where the ground was cursed and only through toil and hardship could he eat. But it wasn't just their bodies that hungered east of Eden. It, so did their souls. They were cut off from God. They could no longer walk with God in the garden and hear his voice and obey his words. So the condition of their hearts paralleled the condition of the ground, hard and stony, full of weeds and thorns, difficult to cultivate. That's man's condition when we're cut off from the life-giving words of God. But in the wilderness and in this gracious gift of the tabernacle, God offers a remedy for both the hardness of the ground and for the hardness of their hearts by providing bread for their bodies and bread of life for their souls.
All right, now directly across from the table, again, you can look at your schematic, to the left of the tabernacle entrance shined the golden lampstand. Unlike the ark and the table, this lamp was constructed entirely of gold, so it was probably pretty heavy. And Exodus 25:37 specifies that the lamps should be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Well, look at your schematic. What's in front of the lampstand? They're shining forward onto what? The table. It shines its light directly on the table, symbolizing, again, according to Michael Morales, that mankind is to live in the light of God's presence. This is really why we sang Redeemed this week. So if you didn't come up with this answer yet, I'll tell you the line that has just been playing on repeat through my head as I've been studying. I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell. After I chose that song, I then thought, oh, maybe we should sing Bread of Heaven, Feed Me Till I Want No More, but <laughs> two weeks, we'll see. But what a happy thought this is, that in this world of darkness, we have a source of continual light. God's presence lights up our path wherever we go. It gives us wisdom for every day. It keeps us from sin. It keeps us safe. Now, there is some disagreement about how long these lamps were to be lit, but we know that at the very least, these lamps shined all through the night. And that is such a precious reminder that he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. That's Psalm 121.4. What a reassuring promise that God is always awake. He's always providing. He's always keeping. He's always leading. Now, besides those more obvious symbols, the Old Testament does not offer much to help us see the symbolism of the lamp, but scholars have connected it to a few different things. I'll tell you what those are. First, the burning bush. So again, the, the lamp is a symbol of God's presence. Others have connected, G.K. Beale in particular, he's connected this with the planets or the lights of the visible heavens. So the sun, the moon, and then the five planets that they would have known about. So maybe this lamp symbolizes God's authority over all the universe, or it could just be an indicator that God has brought heaven down to earth. Uh, these planets and stars decorate God's celestial temple, right there in his backyard. So and the tabernacle is a pattern of God's heavenly temple. So in the candlestick, we might just be getting a little microcosm of God's backyard. But the candlestick is most likely a throwback to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So with its language of branches and buds and almond flowers, it is built to resemble a tree. And with its continually burning lights, it's as if that tree is just bursting into bloom. So we recall the abundance of Eden, where God's presence lit up the world with life. And then of course the number seven is highly symbolic as well. It's God's number, the number of perfection. We know that God himself is our light, and his face shines on us as we eat what he has provided and as we eagerly consume his words. Now, remember those old grainy, fuzzy TVs I mentioned earlier? You didn't know how clear the picture could be until time passed and we entered the world of HD, right? Well, now time has passed on Israel as well, and the fuzziness of the tabernacle has given way to the grandeur of God's heavenly throne room. 
Moses was copying this throne room when he built the tabernacle. But the tabernacle wouldn't be the first or the last time heaven would come down to earth. The tabernacle would be replaced by Solomon's temple, and God would dwell there for a time. But after Israel's repeated rebellions, he'd leave, but not forever. Because many years later, as the prophets foretold, God would send his son, the word made flesh, to tabernacle among us. That's what John 1.14 says. So God walking with his people once more. Jesus, too, would hold out his arms to an obstinate people, offering not just his words, but his own flesh and blood for our sustenance. He taught that to enter God's heavenly temple, we must first eat his flesh and drink his blood in a communion of sinners, his death for our life. Well, at his resurrection, Jesus didn't, like Aaron on the Day of Atonement, kind of carefully pull back the veil and enter with dread, carrying only the blood of slain animals. Instead, Jesus triumphantly entered heaven, not with downcast eyes, but with joyful boldness, approaching God's face, offering his own precious blood as atonement for our sins. And then, in a divine miracle, which Old Testament saints could never really fully wrap their minds around, he sent his spirit to fill and indwell his people, so that you and you and you and me, we are now God's tabernacle. We have become the earthly dwelling of the God who was enthroned in heaven. So this tabernacle built so many years ago in the wilderness displays God's generosity to his people. And in it, we see God's commitment to graciously provide everything we need so that we can live in the light of his presence, sustained by his words forever. Let's pray. Oh God, how gracious you are. So kind beyond our comprehension. And like Moses, we just boldly ask for more grace. We pray that you would sustain us in this wilderness while we wait to join you in heaven. Bless us as we go and keep us and make your face shine on us and give us peace. Amen.